Good morning. I hope you are caffeinated and awake. I'm excited today as we close out uh, Mark chapter 12. We've been going through the gospel of Mark for over a year now, making our way through. And so we're here in our Enthroning Jesus series, making our way in uh, what will end in the kind of paradoxical enthronement of Jesus that will be his crucifixion, ultimately followed by his resurrection, but his, his death nonetheless. And so as we've been making our way through that, over the past few weeks, we've been in Mark chapter 12. As we've been in Mark chapter 12, we've been following what really is Jesus's final week in the city of Jerusalem. What's going to end with his death on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday, we are kind of in the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday range of what's been going on. And during this time, Jesus has been there in the temple, in the temple being questioned and challenged by various religious leaders. We've been with this to Isaac last week, me the week before, our guest preacher, Lucas Parks. And then even before that with Jesus' clearing of the temple, I mean, this, is, this has been an ongoing role is the relationship of Jesus to the temple. And so what's interesting is today, as we close out chapter 12, we're going to find Jesus turning the tables Instead of taking the questions and challenges from the religious leaders, Jesus will be the one giving his challenge and giving his questions for those religious leaders. And also worth noting is here at the end of chapter 12 today, this is Jesus's final public teaching. This is his final sermon. This is his final moment of being in the spotlight, what he says and does here. As we move into chapter 13 and 14 and inwards towards the end of of Mark, it is going to be Jesus regularly and consistently just meeting with his disciples, private conversations. And then from there, his arrest, it's all what happens to him with his, his trial, his arrest, uh, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. This is Jesus's final sermon. And so that should set, I hope, the table for us a little bit of, okay, Jesus, this is Jesus's final public word. You know, we've been with him for over a year now, watching him teach and heal all of these, these things that he's been saying and doing. And here we are at the end of his ministry, his public ministry, at least, his final sermon. What does Jesus have to say? Not surprisingly, building up from what we've seen over the past year, Jesus' final sermon is he's going to detail two things. Who is the Christ? Who is the awaited Messiah? Who is he? And who are his true followers? right? Discovering Jesus, our whole series, enthroning Jesus, following all of our series through Mark have been around who is Jesus and who are his true followers. And here we get Jesus' final declaration today. So I am caffeinated. I am excited. I am, I am spicy and I am I'm ready to go. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Mark 12. We're going to read the whole text today, 35 through 44. Then we'll begin with a time of prayer, just setting the landscape, and then we'll move into it looking at uh, each, each component. So Mark 12, beginning in verse 35, would you read it with me there on your, on your Bibles as you have them? It says, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself called him Lord, so how is he his son? The great throng heard him gladly. 
And then in his teaching, he went on to say, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Surely they will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite of the treasury and he watched people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people came and they put in large sums, but he saw a poor widow come and she put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Seeing this, Jesus called his disciples over to him and he said to them, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who contributed to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. And so, Father, we stand here once again uh, in the historical continuation of your, your church for 2,000 years gathering together to sing, to pray, to study the scriptures, to take a closer look at who your son is and what it means to be his people. May you guide us as we move our way through the text today. Would you speak through me, help me even to uh, edit on the fly, to, to have a sense of where your spirit is guiding our, our community as we study this today. Speak. In your name we pray. Amen. As always, uh, notes are there in the chat. You can follow along. What we just read here are three stories all threaded together. Uh, by a connection there, you might have seen in verse 32 of the 35, this being Jesus teaching in the temple. And then right after he talks about this kind of weird thing about the son of David, in verse 38, his teaching where he talks about beware the scribes. It's one long thread that Jesus is talking about. This is one sermon. Even more, it's connected by this repeated kind of pointing back to the scribes and also this mentioning of the widows, both in when he condemns the scribes, but also in watching the widow. How did these all come together? To find that, we're going to work our way through each of the three components, and then we'll come back at the end and consider how they all fit. First, let's look back at the beginning of our text today in 12 verse 35 where Jesus here is teaching in the temple and he asked the question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? How can the scribes, how can the, the Bible teachers, the pastors of the day, how can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, the awaited anointed king is the son of King David? Now, this idea of the Messiah being the son of David, this is a consistent theme throughout the Old Testament. Jesus' Bible Numerous prophecies in the Old Testament and Israel's writings that, that the, the Messiah, this awaited king who would come and set the world aright, would be a son of David. The ground bed for this was back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David himself hears from God, where God says, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom forever. There would be a singular offspring, one from the line of David who would have this forever kingdom. And so this son of David was one on level connected to a son of David, a biological son of David, a Jerry Springer, you are the father, right? Like the paternity test uh, from that, that line, a great, great, great grandson of David, but also was not just biological, but ideological the sense that the son of David would not just be his DNA, his blood, but also like him, 
In the same way that uh, my, my wife remarks on a regular basis that my, our, our four-year-old, is Emma, is definitely your daughter. You know, her, her love for all things chicken wings and noodles, or the fact that my four-year-old knows what the word organizing means, and she does that every single night before bed, organizing her room. She is definitely my daughter. In that statement, I am not saying anything about her DNA or about her blood or, or lineage, but about the way that she carries herself, about who she is that is connected to who I am and how I am. And so this idea that the Messiah, the King, would be a son of David was not just genealogy, but ideology. That he would be about the family line and the family business. That like King David, he would be a political, a military, a royal leader. And so the son of David, even beyond Jesus's time, became associated with nationalistic zeal Son of David language was huge during the, the Jewish revolt and then war that would come 37 years later from when Jesus is teaching today. And even after the fall of Jerusalem, uh, Emperor Vespasian would send out a, a military order to hunt down and kill anyone from the family line of David, basically squashing any and all messianic hope. And so Jesus here, just to come back into the moment, the text of what Jesus is saying, Jesus is challenging and asking the question, why do the scribes say, that the Messiah would simply be a son of God? Why do they say that he is? And he's going to get into why it's more than that. As he pulls from in verse 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit declaring, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I will put your enemies under your feet. And so Jesus, he questions the way that the scribes are reading that, that the son of of David would simply be a son of David. The Messiah would only be a son of David because of, in quoting from Psalm 110 here, this image that David lays forward, Psalm 110 being written by David and about the Messiah, about the awaited king. Psalm 110 has this interesting way that it begins. The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord being the, the name of God, the, the creator God, the God of Israel, the, that God said to my Lord, my, my master, sit at my right hand, share in my rule with me until your enemies are made your footstool, share in my reign, share in my victory. So here you have somehow David's son, a great, 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 great grandson, has God speaking to him saying, share in my rule and my reign. This is a statement that was never given to David, was not given to any, was absolutely new territory in the idea of some kind of reigning king. That, that not that his reign would be uh, reflective of God's, but that he would share in the very rule and reign and victory of God himself. The only thing that comes close to it, as we're gonna look at next week, is Daniel chapter seven and the son of man who would ascend the clouds to sit at the right hand of God. The only thing that comes close. This is absolutely new territory that David's son would somehow yet be his master, someone whose rule and reign would be synonymous, equal with the rule and reign of God himself. This is why, as I said at our beginning, Psalm 110, not only pulled from by Jesus here, but by the early church, Psalm 110 is the most cited, most alluded to, most quoted Old Testament passage by the New Testament. It was ground zero for this new movement 
this new understanding that somehow the God of Israel was a community of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that the Son in becoming human was fully God yet fully man. This is Psalm 110, held it all for the early church where they could point back and say, see, we're not making anything up. This was awaited by David himself. I also just wanna point down to look down the hallway and show you something. Is at the beginning in verse 36, really briefly there, is Jesus, the way he thinks about Psalm 110, is he says, who wrote it? In verse 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit. Did you see that? This is here that the inspiration of scripture, that the Bible is fully a divine and yet human word at 100% at the same time, a word of God and a word of man and needs to be treated and received as such is not something imposed by later Christians, but was in Jesus's very understanding of how the book came together, that this is, Psalm 110 is David writing and yet the Holy Spirit speaking. There's a whole sermon there, but Jesus believes in the inspiration of scripture. How about that? Not surprising for many of us, but all the same. So then in in 1237, Jesus reflects on Psalm 110 and says, look, the identity of the Messiah must be more than just simply the son of David. So then he says, David himself calls his future son and great, great, great grandson, Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng, you know, this great crowd, they hear him gladly. This is, this is incredible. Have you ever heard anything like this, they're saying? In, in Jesus' culture, sons always honor their fathers. A father or great, 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 great grandfather would never call their great, 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 great grandsons Lord. Even for those of you that have little ones in your house, you know this is true. That, that dynamic does not happen. When my little four-year-old starts saying, I'm the boss, right? This is not how things work in this house, Right? And in the same way, in an honor-shame culture, especially the great-great-grandson and King David, the zenith of all of Israel's kings, would certainly not say that to one of his great-great-grandsons unless there was something fundamentally different about the Messiah. And so in effect, Jesus says, Christ as the son of David is not incorrect, it's inadequate. It is not the full picture of who he is. That the son of David is also, yes, the son of God. That Israel's Messiah is the embodiment of Israel's Lord, the creator God, the true living God become human is David's son somehow. So at this point, this is just worth acknowledging that for many people that may want to you know, have conversations with folks, well, Jesus never really claimed he was God. Not like your 21st century secular ears would think of Jesus standing up and going, I am God. The, the emperors did that. The Caesars did that. Anybody, there were people all over the place that were claiming to be in some form of, of God. But for Jesus, as a Jewish person as a monotheist as monotheistic as they come violently so throughout history that there is one god for him to set himself within those royal reign and rule of that god and to claim in some sense the the lord and my lord coming together this is his claim to divinity but as made as a as a first century jew within his context so Jesus doesn't walk around just saying, I am God. He says it within the context of the, the history of the Jewish scriptures to Jewish ears. And so although we may think that Jesus never said he was God, he clearly did. And, the, and his Jewish contemporaries heard it that way, which is why they arrested him and crucified him for blasphemy, claiming to be God, making himself equal with God. 
And so here, all this comes together is that Jesus in his final public teaching, this is his final sermon, right? He is not hiding anything anymore. There's no more secrecy. You remember all throughout Mark, people have been saying who he is and he tells them to be quiet. Here, Jesus pulls everything back and he says, this is who I am. I am the son of David and I am David's God. I am David's Lord embodied and somehow become human and God here. The strongest claim of Jesus's identity yet all comes together, that he is more than the son of David. He is the son of God. Something that for us in reading has been consistent throughout Mark. We saw it in the introduction of Mark's gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. We've watched the demons in chapter three and chapter five acknowledge and know who he is. In the coming chapters, the Roman centurion seeing Jesus dead on the cross will say, surely this man was the son of God. Everybody in Mark's gospel knows and sees who Jesus is at some level, and it's not who we'd expect. The Bible teachers, the scribes, the religious leaders, which is exactly who Jesus goes after next. In verse 38, And in the same teaching, so this is Jesus' one big sermon, he continues and he says, beware of the scribes. These folks who walk around in long robes, they like greetings in the marketplaces. They have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Surely they will receive the greater condemnation. There is one command in Jesus' final sermon. One command. Beware, watch out, avoid, keep away from the scribes, the Bible teachers of their day, the pastors of their moment. Jesus just spent the opening verses of his teaching challenging the teaching of the scribes, and now he's coming to condemn the living of these scribes. These, the, the, again, the pastors of their day. And so just to translate this long robes and best seats at synagogues, because like, you know, I'm not, no, nobody's here in long robes or synagogues anymore. To, to do a little work of, of Ryan, the Ryan contemporary version translating, let's just roll through what's going on here. What's Jesus actually condemning here? The first thing he calls out is they like to walk around in long robes. You could simply put this as their, their desire for appearances. They have a preoccupation with clothing and fashion. Hello, hashtag preachers and, or, you know, Instagram preachers in sneakers. Jesus says, beware pastors who show themselves to have a predisposition and a desire for appearances. This can be fashion. This can be, you know, you, you fill in the blank with, with where you see that. Jesus says, beware pastors who have a desire and a, a, they like to, to dress the best. He says, watch out for them. He says, uh, beware of these scribes who like greetings in the marketplaces, whereas the long robes were about appearances. The greeting in the marketplace is about applause. Back in that day, that the uh, scribes, as they walked into the marketplace, people would rise and greet them as father or master. Jesus is saying, beware of the, uh, the pastors who are wrapped up in the fame and the celebrity. Stories of like modern day pastors where their whole staff, whenever that pastor would walk in the room, would make the staff, all of them had to stand up and greet them. One intern was fired. We're not doing it for you. We're not doing it for you. Lorenzo's getting here. And, and one, in, one intern that legitimately was fired because they, 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 they were new. They didn't know to stand up and on the spot got lit. This is the sort of thing Jesus sees. 
That's obviously an explicit, overly like strong version of this. But Jesus is saying, beware pastors who have a motivation for applause. They're motivated by celebrity. They are motivated to be in the spotlight. He continues, beware the scribes who uh, desire the, the best seats in the synagogues. So we have appearances, we have applause. And now he says, beware of these scribes who hoard authority. Authority. These are those who crave power. They crave prestige. They crave uh, having the voice in the room. The sort of pastors that surround themselves with yes men and yes churches. You've seen this if you've been around the church. Beware the pastors, the scribes with appearances, applause, the ones who hoard authority, the places of honor at feasts. That is, they crave attention and honor and importance. They've got the social media following. All this leads up to them being those who devour widows' houses. That is, they abuse the church. They prey on, they deceive, they sponge off of the faithfulness and obedience of the people in their church. That can happen financially, like Jesus is going after here with taking widows' houses from them, uh, which is a whole practice that's been uh, connected to within historical studies. You can go geek out on that if you want. But this happens with sexuality. This happens with sex. It happens with money. Even more, at times, not as explicit, but just as nefarious as pastors who sponge off their people for the attention, for the applause, and for that feeling of authority. Jesus says, watch out for those who take, devour, and consume those in their church they're meant to be serving. And then finally, he says, beware the scribes who by pretense make long prayers. The problem with Jesus is not long prayers. Those are awesome when motivated by faith. The problem with Jesus is long prayers that are motivated by pretense, by superficial, shallow spirituality. He says, beware those scribes who manipulate your expectations of spiritual leadership and use it to manipulate you. Those who play a PR game, be on your guard. And it's unfortunate that reading chapter 12 here, that this is just so distant to us. We don't have any practical application or examples of how this is happening on a regular basis. Oh, wait. You flip through the news, regardless of, even if you don't identify as a Christian, you know, you've got the Carl Lentz stuff at Hillsong. You got Ravi Zacharias this past week. You've got in the midst of uh, the Me Too conversation, Church Too, spiritual abuse cases. The list goes on and on. My own personal story is uh, I'm not, I haven't been in ministry a long time, 10 years, but within my 10 years, I've experienced no less than 10 pastors, professors, close friends, coworkers who have fallen into some example of this nonsense, of this mess. There is an occupational hazard of being a pastor, a scribe, a Bible teacher. The reality of like me being up here right now and being noticed by everyone can turn into a desire and a need to be noticed. Me getting applause and, oh man, the sermon was so good. We're so grateful for you. Turns into a, a grabbing for applause that I, I need it. Having authority as a pastor within the church can become uh, ingrown and turn into a hoarding of authority where serving the church then turns into abusing the church and being an example turns into pretense and faking. I've watched it happen time and again. I have seen its seeds growing within me at times. Churches implode 
people leave the faith. Jesus is dishonored. Legacies are destroyed. I have friends lost. I have tossed out more books and commentaries than I care to count at this point. I have gone through more hours of therapy to rework why I'm even giving myself to this vocation because of what I've time and again seen, the occupational hazard of being a leader in the church. You see, spiritual leadership is a powerful thing, but it can be used like anything for good or for bad that can be used to build or destroy the church. Which is why Jesus says, scribes, spiritual leaders, pastors, Bible teachers who operate in this sort of nonsense, they will receive the greater condemnation. Or it can be put, they will be punished most severely. Jesus says there is a greater condemnation for those who know God, those who know the scriptures, those who know about the church, those who know about what they should be doing and what should not should be doing. Those who know better will be held accountable for what they know and the leadership that they own. And so though the Bible talks all the time about, not all the time, but the Bible talks about condemnation, that all of us stand in judgment before a holy God, there is a greater, stronger condemnation for those who are false leaders, false teachers. As Paul puts it, not many should aspire to become teachers for they will bear the stricter judgment. And so though some pastor's sins are hidden and don't come up till later, as Paul talks about, Jesus identifies here for us six telltale signs, six fruits of bad scribes, bad pastors, those who will bear the greater condemnation. And so he says, beware them, beware scribes. And even more than that, beware Christians who show some amount of these these fruits, these telltale signs of greater condemnation. Because the danger is that they may devour you like the widow's house, but the promise is that they will disciple you. They will shape you in their way. And Jesus's church has no place for a motivation of being motivated by appearances and applause and hoarding authority and looking for attention of abusing and consuming rather than giving and serving and enacting. There's no place for it in his church. So he looks at his 12 disciples there with him and he says, avoid them, beware them. They may devour you. They will certainly disciple you and has no place in my church. And so Jesus' final public teaching, keep this in mind, is he's in the temple. The scribes aren't somewhere else. They're in the crowd. And he looks in the crowd and he warns everyone else of those in the crowd and he condemns the scribes there with him. All of chapter 12 has been him dealing with the temple leadership. And so here he keeps poking the bear and here he's poking it again. The question is, will they, and with us as Mark's readers, we Repent to turn and change, or will we continue in rebellion? And in the coming chapters, if you know anything about Christianity, you know where the story is going. They continue in their rebellion. It will be they who betray, arrest, and hand him over and have him crucified. Why? Because he is challenging their way of doing things at a fundamental level. So if we have the condemnation of the scribes, what is left for us? Where do we go from here? Verse 41. So Jesus now sits down opposite of the treasury and he's watching the people putting in money into the offering box. He sees many rich people come and they put in large sums. You know, they come with the big bucket of all the coins. 
This poor widow comes, though, and she puts in two small little copper coins, which make a penny. He calls his disciples over to him, and he says, Amen. (laughs) Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who've been contributing to the offering box. They all contributed out of their abundance. She, out of her poverty, has given everything that she had, all she had to live on. Jesus, after finishing up with his teaching, he kind of goes people watching. You know, some of us go to the Century City Mall or, or used to go to the Century City Mall, go people watching, go down to, you know, Venice Beach. Jesus goes to church and he sits and he watches the offering. You know, we've got, we used to have the little, you know, stands. He sits and watches the offering stand. He just watches as people are engaging, interacting with it. He sees large people coming and, you know, they got all the money making the sound. Matthew 6, he talks about people that, these, that give large amounts of money for the sake of the sound that it makes. You know, people getting attention. Whoa, did you see someone? Look how much he's giving. But Jesus doesn't pay attention to that. His attention, his eyes rest on this poor widow who marches her way quietly forward, slips in two coins, and then leaves. He calls his disciples, 12, all over to him. Come here, come here. Did you guys, did you, boys, did you see that? Did you see what she just did? She gave more than all the rest. I mean, think about the, I, the, the, the insane claim that Jesus is making here. You've got people that are offering up, you know, hundreds and thousands and 10,000, you know, our, our money's worth right here, writing the big checks, Right. They're they're cashing out the stock options. They're making the big checks. They're making the awesome thing. And Jesus says that those two coins are are far, they are far, she gave more. When it comes to our giving, Jesus' focus seems to be less on what we give and more on what we keep. With the example of the widow being nothing, she gave it all. You see, last week with uh, Pastor Isaac, we looked at Jesus' teaching on the greatest commandment, to love God with all you are. And though Isaac did an incredible job of of landing that and bringing that home for us, that command is quite abstract. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that actually mean? This week, we get a direct move from the abstract, love God with all you are, to a practical, concrete command or example, we could say. To love God with all you are is that you live Sacrificially, you give generously to the church. And even more so, when you consider what we've just spent our time looking at with the scribes, we find here in this poor widow, the polar opposite. We find the polar opposite. Unlike the scribes, there's no appearances. There's no applause. There's no, no, any authority that she might have in the temple. There's no attention that anyone's giving to the woman giving two coins. And there's no acting on her part. This is truly what she has to give. And even more than that, not only is she not thinking about abusing and consuming and devouring from the church, she's thinking about what she can give. And in even more than that, she is the one that's being abused by the scribes. And she's still remaining faithful. She's the widow who's, she's poor because the temple leadership devoured her house. And even still, even in the midst of seeing example after example in her own self having it wounded against her, every reason for her to give up on the God of Israel because her leadership has so, she continues to be faithful. Good Lord, there's a whole sermon there. 
They, they are rich. She is poor. She's uneducated in the law. They are the educators of the law. She is a woman. They are the men at the highest level. They are stealing money and she is giving it. The scribes are motivated. Time and again, Jesus just talked about as what they could devour, what they could take, what they could consume from the church. She is motivated by what she could give. And as we just read, the scribes are condemned as faithless and the widow is commended as faithful, even amid unfaithful pastors. And so as we consider the example of the widow, I, there's, I, there, we're, we're going away from the notes for a second here. On, on, there's, there's something to be said about the faithfulness of the widow that Jesus sets before us is that even in the midst of the seeing the example after example of leaders who have not just made a mess of their own lives, but their mess has, has, has caused pain or difficulty for us because of unfaithful pastors. That that is not a reason for us to check out from the Jesus thing for ourselves or to live up to the fullness of what he's called us to. Like I said, I'm off notes right now. So this is real time. There, there are some of us that have genuinely been hurt in the past by, by church abuse cases or by leadership in some form of another or churches in some form of another. And what we have done is we've allowed that to basically mean that every, all the commands of Jesus and this whole church thing is basically off the plate for us because of what's happened to us. And, and what Jesus is calling us to do is to wrestle through for ourselves that, that I'm not here and that my discipleship is not indicative on the failure or the faithfulness of my leaders in the past. And so on one level, there, there's something there. Maybe that's some more time of journaling and thought. But on the other hand, I, I want to spend some time on the financial generosity of this woman because this is, this is an area of needed growth within collective, to put it, to put it simply. We want to live the way of Jesus. This is not about us paying the bills. We've been able to pay the bills because we have particularly some people in the church who like these, these rich folks that are giving large sums of money and then they show up and they're generous, sacrificially so. And so this isn't about us ending up in the black. This is about being a community that follows the way of Jesus and doing so, the example of the poor widow, a community of faithful stewards. It's interesting that the one command of this passage is to beware the scribes and then right after that, we get a commendation, an example of a poor widow. In effect, Jesus says, do you want to beware the scribes? Do you want to avoid becoming like them? Follow the way of the widow. Not the scribes, not the scribes. And in spending time and thinking about this this week, I think that in the scribes and comparing them with the widow, that we find the reasons why we don't give or why we give wrongly. Well, let's just go back to the scribes and consider the reasons that we don't give. Well, we don't give because of the fact that we prioritize long robes, our appearances, our lifestyle and the way that we live. That I might have to say no to some particular avenue of the way that I live, the way that I dress, the way that I present myself and the phone that I have and the car that I drive and the house that I live in and the clothes that I wear and all the 900 streaming services that I subscribe to and the HelloFresh and the Blue Apron. There, it, it just goes on. And the whole point is Jesus calls in, in, 
condemning the long robes. In a sense, he's calling for a, a, sim, a simple lifestyle. And so for some of us, that may be clothing. For some of us, that can be all sorts of things. Jesus calls for a simplicity in his people. And the fact is, is the reason we may not give is because we don't have anything left after we buy our long robes. Similarly with the scribes, the reason we don't give is the the best seats in the synagogues. It is the authority, the hoarding of it, the self-made autonomy that I have the best seat in the synagogue. I have the authority. I speak the word of, of ownership over my own life. And money is the way that most often we do that. And the fact that someone or some church would have authority over my dollars, over my checkbook, puts us in a place of trust and God forbid I trust. What ends up happening is when we're motivated by appearances and motivated by authority, the sorts of things that keep us from giving is we end up becoming devourers of the church. Yes, it may not be the widow's houses, but we become consumers. We arrive at church choosing and believing that everything revolves around me because we have built our lives around that Monday to Saturday, everything revolving around me. And so I show up to church and why would I give to this? I don't give to anything else because everything gives to me. You see, giving is more than simply us just doing something. It is something that's doing something to us, in us, through us. It is making us a more generous people. You become a generous person by being generous. This is the exact same problem we saw with the rich young ruler. The reason why, as Lorenzo preached on the first Sunday of this year, the reason why the rich young ruler could not give up his money was because of these sorts of things right here. The autonomy and authority that he had over his life. The trust that he had in himself and an inability to let go. There are reasons that we don't give and most of them come back to the fact that we look far more like the scribes than the widow. But some of us, maybe we do give, but we give wrongly. What would that look like? Well, back to the scribes, applause, attention, acting. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, those who give in the synagogues and they give uh, large sums so that it might be heard by others, so they might be praised by all, so they may be seen. He says, truly, they've already received their reward, meaning there's nothing beyond it for them. This is just like long prayers being motivated by pretense, earning applause and attention, just like the scribes where uh, in some churches, you know, back in the South, wherever you might be from giving is this kind of like public thing where everybody sees, you know, writing the check and bringing it forward. Churches that kind of put forward who the top givers were as a way to manipulate other people to give. But this can also happen when we begin to see the church as some kind of form of like a subscription service or a club that my giving uh, then indicates me as, as, you know, receiving some level of, of, you know, more than, better than, you know, attention from the pastors that now I, you, oh, I owe you and you own me. Like we give wrongly when we're motivated by applause, attention, or the pretense, the acting, the manipulation of the scenes. And originally I said, you know what? I don't think this one is that prevalent within collective. I think it's far more of like the why we don't give. But the more that I thought about it, the more that, and this is actually the more that I thought about it, the more I was talking about it uh, to Aaron during breakfast this morning, is that actually this happens just as much as the reasons that we don't give. Giving for the sake of applause, attention, and acting. You just think about the cause communities that happen, you know, within our, my generation. You know, Coney 2012, if you remember that. 
the ice bucket challenge, the live strong bracelets, is we love to contribute to something. We show up and we give the large amount or we give some amount, whether that's our voice or a bracelet or a, a viral video. We buy the Tom's shoes, right? We, we give, um, but, but then we seem to be inconsistent with the long-term faithfulness that is actually necessary to overturn some of those things. We give so much that we can have the bracelet, we can have the shoes, we can have the social media post, but then we disconnect. I've seen it time and again, and it continues right now in the conversations around race. Show up, we make the post, but then the long-term faithfulness of a lifestyle change that actually leads to change, we don't wanna be a part of the faithfulness that it's necessary. And the same thing happens with our giving to the church. We show up when there's a big cause. Oh boy, do we. We show up when there's a big need that we can pat ourselves on the back because we were able to help so-and-so. We were able to make budget. We were able to buy the building. But then once those things come off, the normal faithfulness that then actually sets us up to be the church and community that we were made to be, one of justice and generosity, that, that's, you know, too ordinary. And so we check out. So here, here's the reality. As we zoom out from this and on the giving stuff, is Jesus' first command, or his only command in the whole text today, is to beware the scribes, like I said. Not just to beware them, but we beware becoming like them. And he believes, it seems, that Jesus sets before the disciples and us, he commends to us the example of the poor widow as the way that you do that. The way that you, that you break down the desire for appearances and applause and authority and attention and acting and devouring and consuming and injustice is by enacting and living in the way of sacrificial and secretive and, and generous and faithful generosity and giving. That those are the two pathways that are before us. And Jesus sees the example as the widow as the way forward. Because like I said, that generosity is more than just us doing something for the church. It's doing something to us. And Jesus sees radical generosity as the way that you avoid becoming like a scribe. And so here in Jesus' final public teaching, as it comes to a close, Jesus, it's so powerful. Jesus' final sermon, his final public word, not only is it about his identity, not only is he continuing to condemn the, the religious leadership, he holds up one of the lowest people in society, not just a woman, not just a poor woman, but a widow, as the example and prototype of discipleship. At the, his final sermon, his final thing that he goes, this is what I'm looking for, and it's this poor widow. She's the prototype. In fact, the, the final verse in chapter 12, the final thing that he says in commending her, it says that, you know, she put in everything she had and then all she had to live on. The original Greek that Mark wrote in, he, he put it a little simple, more simply. Literally, it translates to, she gave her very life. Mm. What has been the main thing that Jesus has been hitting on as discipleship all throughout Mark's gospel. Not only is she the opposite of the scribes, she's loving God with all that she is. She has given her very life. She has uh, rendered to God the things that are God. She has done what the rich young ruler could not. She has done what Jesus called his disciples to do. To deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me to give your lives for me time and again he said here we have at the end of his public ministry the ideal 
prototype for discipleship is this poor widow who's giving all that she has. She's giving her very life. And she, why it's so profound that she does this is this sets up why this is the prototype for discipleship is where the rest of Mark's gospel is going to go. She is the prototype in some way as she points to what she's exemplifying in the way of Jesus himself. Because at this turning point, 13, 14, 15, as we move into the final chapters, we are going to find Jesus doing the exact same thing, but, but to the uttermost. As he said in Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is, this is it. This is what faithful discipleship is all about. It is about following the way of Jesus. The example of the poor widow is simply her entering into and in some way exemplifying what the Messiah, Jesus himself is going to do in the days and hours to come is he is going to give his very life. And so this is what motivates and generates your generosity and mine. It's not like the scribes that we see are giving us some sort of subscription plan within the kingdom of God, but rather as a radical act of gratitude for the fact that the son of God himself has done this even more in giving his very life. This is the motivation for sacrificial generosity, secret generosity. So as we come to a close here, We've just looked at three stories that hit on the identity of Christ, the condemnation of the scribes, and the commendation of the widow. How do they all come together? Well, the scribes, as we saw, were wrong on the identity of Christ, and they were unjust consumers of the people of God, which came first, chicken and the egg. The widow, on the other hand, Though we are absolutely silent on what she believes about the Messiah and the identity of the Christ, her generosity reveals that she is far closer to the kingdom than the religious leaders of her day. And so beware the scribes, follow the example of the poor widow, and in doing so, enthrone David's son, David's Lord, Jesus Christ. Over the past few weeks, I've been reading uh, Eugene Peterson, who passed away a few years ago, his son, Eric, uh, published a, a set of letters that Eugene had written to Eric. It's now published under the, the title, uh, Letters to a Young Pastor. And so it's this kind of these fatherly letters that Eugene wrote to his son as his son was kind of setting out in you know, the work of being a pastor. And so I've been kind of sitting down on Saturdays and I'll read one letter a week and kind of really go slow and take notes. And most of the time I'm just like sobbing my way through it. A couple, uh, last week, I was reading through uh, one of his letters written back in 2001. And uh, Eugene Peterson, he, he's writing about the turning point in his ministry. This pastor who would go on to live and incredibly in the midst of all of the mess of pastoral life, a, a, one, of, one of many examples of faithfulness. He said the turning point in his ministry came when he was 30 years old and Eugene settled into what he called being a faithful failure. A faithful failure. He said the turning point in his ministry was when he committed himself to being faithful to God and being okay, settled into being a failure by the world's metrics of appearance, applause, authority, attention, and how it always shows up later in acting and then abuse. He just said, you know what? 
I'm gonna let those things go. I'm okay with being seen as a failure in light of those. My main commitment is to being a faithful in the way that right in the midst of the rise of the church, mega church stuff and the celebrity pastor stuff, Eugene just settled in and go, I'm gonna be a faithful failure. I thought of Eugene Peterson as I thought about the scribes and I thought about the widow this week because the widow too, that she was a faithful failure. In the world's eyes, no appearances, no applause, no authority, no, none, none of it. She's poor. She's a widow. She's a, she's a, and on all counts by the world standards, she's a failure. And yet she was faithful, faithful with all that she had. And in Jesus's eyes, this means that she is actually the rich one. Meanwhile, the scribes were unfaithful successes. And in doing so, they were failures themselves to the uttermost. As Jesus said, what profit is there in gaining the whole world, but losing your soul back in chapter eight. And so just reflecting on this this week is we need more pastors that have settled into being faithful failures. I'm doing the hard work of trying to do that for myself. We need more churches of people that are, we're settling into being okay with being faithful failures. Because Jesus is not looking for people with the appearances. He's not looking for the people with all the applause, all the attention, all the authority. He's not looking for people with, with any of those things, but he's looking for people with, with a a radical trust and abandonment. So the good news is, is after living through 2020 and then what looks like 2021 may be a lot of, is that Jesus is not looking for people with the financial, the spiritual, the physical, the emotional, the mental riches. He's, he's, he's looking for people that are okay and they know they've got two coins to give and they give it nonetheless. So the good news is that Jesus doesn't want a lot, but he does want everything. And as David's son, as David's Lord, he deserves it. And so we bring it because he brought it for us. Because Jesus himself was the faithful failure that led the way for the widow, that led the way for Eugene Peterson, that leads the way for us now. He was the faithful failure who in the world's eyes was rejected and betrayed and arrested and beaten and crucified and killed. He gave his life. And yet in doing so was faithful to God and was resurrected vindicated, ascended, enthroned by God, right? The, the son of God, David's Lord, sitting at the right hand of the father until his enemies are made his footstools. And so here before us is the invitation. We can be, follow the way of the scribes into greater condemnation, or we can follow the way of the widow and in doing so, follow the way of Jesus. And the good news is that like we looked at last week with Pastor Isaac is that you don't have to be a poor widow in order to receive this, is that even scribes can receive it, but it will require a fundamental rewiring of the way that you see the world that is based on the person of Jesus, David's son, David's Lord, the one who gave his life as a ransom for many and now invites us to follow in his way of radical sacrificial generosity. Let's pray.